The following is a Journeywise Network production. Hey friends, welcome to You Matter. I'm Shane Stanford. You Matter is a ministry of Journeywise Network, uh, an organization that is dedicated to developing resources and enhancing conversations about the intersection of faith and life. Our mission is to equip people on the journey of life to love Jesus and love like Jesus along the way. Now, You Matter is a little bit different. This podcast is not specifically focused on faith, but looks at those intersections where people have done significant things uh, along the journey of life and have learned lessons that not only made a difference for them, but possibly can make a difference in other people's lives as well. Today's episode is a special one to me because I get to interview a childhood hero of mine. Johnny Bench was the catcher of the Cincinnati Reds from the late 1960s until the early 1980s. He's a member of the Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, was uh, a league MVP, played in several World Series, and is considered by more than just me to be the greatest catcher in Major League Baseball history. And I know there are Yogi Berra fans and Thurman Munson fans out there that would disagree, but and that's a good conversation to have. But in our conversation with Johnny, I wanted to talk about not just his baseball career, which we do a lot of talking about his baseball career, but also about life and the lessons he learned as a big league catcher and as a celebrity. He was a major celebrity during the 1970s and 80s in particular, as he was doing lots of stuff off of the diamond uh, and involved very much in people's lives on a regular basis but how those lessons then also transformed the way he made decisions uh, after baseball. So we're going to talk a lot about baseball. We're going to talk a lot about the 1970s and 80s, but also about lessons that can mean something very special for all of us today. So we hope you enjoy You Matter, and this is our interview with Johnny Bench. Friends, welcome uh, to the You Matter podcast. Uh, I'm so glad that you've joined us, and this is one of the podcast that I've been looking most forward to, and there's several reasons for that. Uh, our guest today is really the my hero growing up. I um, and I have told him this that uh, when I was a young boy playing little league, uh, I insisted that my number be five. Uh, I was a huge Cincinnati Reds fan, uh, and and I got this from my mom, who was a huge Johnny Bench fan, because and when she played a lot of league softball. And her number was always five, and uh, oh. and so, and so it's uh, it's great to have you with us today. Uh, the man that is considered the greatest catcher in the history of Major League Baseball, Johnny Bench. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Shane. I've I've even heard that I've made your sermon, so I I'm I'm really honored with all of this. Well, you did. You made my sermons, uh, and a couple of times now. And in fact, you probably <laughs> the 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 story of meeting you and how all that worked through our mutual friend Brad Martin. Uh, will probably end up in a book in the future. So just uh, I'll, I'll send you a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. It's a pleasure being with you. Well, thank you. Uh, we literally are going to start at the beginning, uh, Johnny. Um, uh, I did not know until recently that you were born and raised in Oklahoma. And uh, and at a very young age, um, uh, I think, what, 17, were drafted by the Cincinnati Reds, uh, went to play in, Bu- in Buffalo. Uh, but then ended up uh, making the big leagues pretty quickly. Um, and um, is there anything that you learned as a young man uh, going into your profession, going into the, to your passion, 
that um, that you maybe were not expecting uh, when you became a, a professional baseball player? Well, no, I actually, Shane, you know, at three and a half years old, I decided to want to be a professional baseball player. I had no idea that one in every, only one in every 500,000 kids that played Little League Baseball at that time ever signed a contract. Only 7% of those ever made it to the major leagues. So the percentages obviously were against it, but I wanted to be, you know, prepared as well. So I was really, uh, I attended to my class, uh, my, uh, my studies as valedictorian in my uh, classes in junior and uh, senior high. And great. Uh, I wasn't sure that anybody would ever find a kid growing up in a town of 660 people in Binger, Oklahoma, that that would ever happen. I drew some attention by playing an American Legion team that a couple of former actually made the major leagues, a couple of kids from Anadarko, Oklahoma, that actually made the major leagues. So there were scouts, and, and fortunately for me, there was two brothers, the Griffith brothers, that uh, their, their brother played with the Dodgers, and people scouted them because they were very talented. And at 17 years of age, I did sign with the Reds. I went to Tampa, Florida at 17, got off the plane, went to the ballpark, dressed in a uniform, warmed up the pitcher in the bullpen in the seventh, warmed up the pitcher at home plate in the eighth, and caught the ninth inning of the ball game at 17 years of age. Um, and so I, I, had, I was under baptism right there, and they released the other catcher. So I was the only catcher on the team. And oh, wow. uh, we finished up the season uh, with 12 double headers in a row because we got rained out so much in July. And I was, I caught all, well, I caught all but the last night. I, uh, I didn't catch the 24th game. I caught 23 in 12, in 11 days, 12 days. And then next year I was in the Carolina league. And then I, the next year I was in Buffalo, 1967. And, uh, you know, you, you don't know where you stand. Uh, 66 was in the Carolina league and the manager actually, Merrill Pinky May showed me a, a report that from the Reds said down on the farm, this Johnny bench may be the next catcher in Cincinnati. And I thought, wow, they even know who I am. I didn't even know. You know, <laughs> I had been to spring training. I had been pretty successful in the spring. And uh, then Buffalo was the next stop. And then at the end of uh, 67, I was 19 years old when I got called up to the Reds. So um, it was, uh, it was quite an honor. Obviously I never, well, faced adversity I really didn't in those days but I was uh I was had my nose to the grindstone and I was mm. ready to play do whatever it took to to be successful um I hear you had an interesting interaction early on with Ted Williams who predicted that you were going to go into the baseball hall of fame uh do you remember that interaction well that was you know I came up at the end of 67 then in 1968 <clears throat> I went to spring training People assumed I'd be the starting catcher because I had finished the year. Uh, actually, a guy with a catcher with the name of Don Pavletic won the job, and he caught the first four games. He pulled a hamstring in the fifth game, and I caught 154 out of the next 158 games. And then the next spring, uh, we had a player by the name of Roy Severs who had actually played with Ted Williams. And I said, I wondered if I could meet Ted and get a ball signed. And in spring training, we were in Pompano. We were visiting in Pompano Beach, playing a game, and walked over. and Ted said, "I'd be happy to." He signed the ball, and uh, I I left. And here I read the 
read the baseball when I left uh, Johnny Bench, a Hall of Famer for sure, Ted Williams. And it was like, my goodness, he even knows who I am. I never heard of me. And, and what a prediction and what a, what a thing to have to live up to. And of course, uh, I think it's what, 22 years later that, that uh, prediction comes true. Uh, you make it into the Hall of Fame. Um, you, um, there was an interesting story that I've heard about how seriously you took the job of not just catching the ball, but also helping the game move along, leading, helping the pitcher that you're working with. Uh, a pitcher that, um, uh, the, 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 there's a story uh, that you, <laughs> he was pitching for a while and, um, and his fastball was losing some of its pop. And you told him, and you kept calling us a, a, a breaking ball. Can you tell that story about, and you kind of took the glove off or something like that? Uh, I well, I went through. I caught fifty-four days in a row without a day off. Wow! If you can imagine what what that no. is. Uh, well, hey, you preach fifty-four days in a row, so it's not like the same thing. <laughs> uh, it's fifty-four days. I was about in the fifty-second day, and we had played till about uh, fifteen innings on Saturday night. It was uh, we got I get we left the park at two, got to bed at three, but I had to be back at the ballpark at ten uh, the next morning, and I was now I'll be catching and it's the sixth inning we're down 10 to nothing and I'm wondering why am I not why am I still out here catching and that mm. was just what our manager believed in was 24-7 baseball and we had a pitcher and I was about I had seen him the night before everybody pitched the night before and he came in had a really good curveball and his name is Jerry Rigo he had a really good curveball and I I called the curveball and he said no and he called the curveball no called the curveball no I said well throw the fastball and I was so tired, Shane, that I just sort of reached out, caught the ball barehanded, <laughs> and threw it back to him. I it wasn't to prove anything; it was just the fact that I was so tired after being out there. And why was I there? Uh, it becomes <laughs> I could I could take credit for all of this, but I'm afraid that it wouldn't be totally true. I just was trying to get the day over with. And when you catch 100 and you know 54 out of 158 games, uh, you're 20 years old, but you're still paying the price and the punishment. But, you know, that's what people have to do to be successful is they have to go out there and, and uh, participate, do their job. It, was there was there anything that you would kind of do other, you know, that you would prepare yourself to have that kind of stamina? I mean, I'm sure you were in great shape, uh, but were you, were you trying to, or doing certain things to try to stay in good shape? Or uh, most of the young athletes that I know at that age that, they do that, but yet they're also living a pretty fast life. And um, I know that uh, sometimes it's hard to stay focused, but obviously you were doing a great job because you caught a lot of games over the next 10, 12 years <laughs> and did it well. well. 13, consecutive, yeah, 13 consecutive years of 100 games or more. And I grew up yeah. working in the fields in Oklahoma. We were in the peanut fields, the cotton fields. And so I knew what work was. I had paper routes. I had mowed yards. Uh, and I worked with my dad when in the uh, propane business. I delivered gas. I, I painted tanks. I did stuff. So I knew what work was and what the responsibility was. But, you know, we weren't allowed to work out it basically to lift weights or anything else. So it was basically making sure that you got, when I was told when I was 18, there was, you better have plenty of sleep, avoid the alcohol, avoid women for over excess and make sure you get enough sleep. And sure. that was thing so uh i guess i was just a in in somewhat just an old country boy that basically learned to, and developed my my uh, muscles and skills 
working in the fields as far as stamina was concerned. So, uh, but I was always the last kid off the plane. You know, I, I, sure. it, I was so stiff. I ached so much and mm-hmm. you know, it was just that you're out there, you got to do the job and you got to prepare, be prepared every day that you're there. So, you know, it's like some of my friends say, Oh, my body hurts. And I said, well, now you, now you know how I feel for 50 years, but what good <laughs> does it do to complain? You're out there to do your job. That's what you're getting paid to do. That's what sure. you love to do. And this is your life and this is a responsibility. And that's why I loved it so much. Well, one of the, one of the things that I've heard from others um, who have played uh, baseball was that the thing that made you so incredible was that was your stamina, but also uh, under all of that pressure, you were so accurate in your throws. You were, I mean, I think what, 10, 12 uh, golden gloves at catcher, which is unheard of. Um, and uh, the young, and were you the, were you the first catcher uh, to, to win? Uh, or you want, you were the youngest person to win the most value, most valuable player. Was that not true? Yeah, I won the rookie of the year and a gold glove, which nobody had done. And then I was the rookie of the year. And then I was MVP two years later and, and won my third gold glove. So, I, you know, I just took pride in it. And, and of course, I played on a team that had par excellence. You know, it yeah. was a high standard and we all lived up to that standard. So it was easy to go out there every day. And, you know, you had to you had to perform. And I took pride in catching. I, I, I started when I was very young, working on my arm, throwing accurately, doing things transferring doing the mechanics that i had to do and so no it was just it was you know a catcher can have a great game four ways he calls a great game which is his number one priority he can throw runners out he can block home plate and then he can get hits so there's a lot yeah. of ways for a catcher to really enjoy and have a great day well you um you were certainly a power hitter and i think when you retired had the most home runs by a catcher i think that has been surpassed just recently like uh, but does. <laughs> yes, but to, but to do that in the in the 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 way that you're doing it had to do that and working so much and catching so much, but um, I mean you had over 40 home runs in those first few seasons several times, but then you had a medical issue. Was it early on? Seventy three, I think it was maybe. Seventy two, actually. Uh, I we were doing our annual physical and. Uh, they uh they called me back in to take some x-rays and uh they said well we need to take another one i said okay and i went back in they we always need to take another one okay we always need to take another one a different kind i said wait a minute what's going on well they had found a uh, spot on my lung it was uh, wow. uh i got it basically from uh, it was an airborne fungus coccidioide mycosis which is sometimes called the valley fever and it was an airborne fungus that had got inside my lung and so we were playing in the 72 playoffs against the Pirates. We were playing the World Series later, got beat by the by the Oakland A's. And I four days after I turned 25, I had lung surgery. Wow. And, you know, I guess that people say, um, well, what, what, what did you think about it? And I said, well, I really didn't have anything to think about. I had, had, a, had a doctor who uh, we found in Cincinnati. He had a new technique of the staple surgery. Back in 1972, no one had done this east of the Mississippi. And wow. uh, he said, I want to try to do that so I don't cut your back muscles. Because uh, all the way they would cut from the center of your chest all the way around up to your neck. Well, he only cut me from the center of the chest all the way back to the lap muscles. And wow. uh, I said, well, you know, what happens if you can't play again? I said, well, I'll, I guess I'll be president of the United States. You know, why, <laughs> why settle for 
why settle? Yes. <laughs> why not be? Why not be positive about what you're going to do? I mean, I sure. had been to the White House. I'd played in World Series. I'd played in All Star games. And was I ever going to be Johnny Bench again? No, I wasn't. I mean, they're cutting muscle. They're cutting nerves. They're cutting bone. I was never going to be the, you know, the way I was at a level. I, mm. I say that this is greatness right here. This is the hit the ball here is you're good. Hit the ball out here, you're great. So it's just the reaction time and some of the things that I knew I would probably lose, and I did. The numbers weren't ever quite the same and all that, but it turned out that that doctor and his creativity and, and uh, his intelligence and his skills, you know, gave me, you know, 11 more years. Friends, we hope you're enjoying this episode of You Matter. Uh, take a moment, if you would, to please hit that subscribe button. And we also need you to do a five-star rating. And then, of course, we would love a review that we can share with others about how this podcast is making a difference in your life. Uh, we are a ministry of JourneyWise Network, and we would love to hear back from you. So go to journeywise.network and send us a message that we can share. God bless you. Well, you know, I, I know a thing or two about uh, medical problems, and I've had several crises <laughs> yeah. over the course of my life. And I will, and one of the things I think has mattered most for me to to, to accomplish the things I've done was this idea that okay. I've got to face this, but then I've got to get up and go on. I've got to, I got to keep going, do the things that I've been called to do. And uh, it sounds like that was the same thing going on with you. And, uh, and what's so interesting about that story for me was that you did have 11 more wonderful seasons where uh, you went to the world series multiple times. I think over the course of those 11 years, you had about four pennants, if I'm not mistaken, Six um, four worlds. Four National League titles, two world championships, yeah. Uh, well, uh, well, uh, now, was Sparky Anderson your manager uh, from the time you started, or did he come later in your time with the Reds? He came later, and it was very important. I think it's a great story that uh, uh, Sparky took over in 1970, and and uh, I came out of the, the spring training facility, and I was like, uh, I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm 22. You know, and yeah. out of the spring training facility and Sparky stopped me and he said, can I ask you a question? And I'm like, manager's talking to me and I won't ask me a question. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I felt like a professional. I felt like a man. And ah, he said, wow. what if we took, what if we took infield over here or an outfield and we took pictures over here? And I thought, wow, he really does think I have a brain and he values my opinion. And I tell people to this day. You know, management wants to know. They think they know everything, and they don't. They probably do, but to get ideas. And so Sparky would call in Pete, Joe, Tony, and myself. We would meet as a group, or we would meet individually. And he would ask us our opinion, what we thought. Now, he didn't take all of those things, but he wanted ideas. He wanted to know what was thinking, what we thought. He asked about certain players. You think Shane could play on our ball club? Absolutely. You think Bill could play on our club? No. Does he fit in? Does he have a position that he could play? Does he realize sure. he's going to be on the bench? Well, well, you get ideas, and then you formulate a plan from that point. And I felt like a professional because usually management was up here, the player was here. And all of a sudden, I felt I was kind of like on an even keel with him. And it's still, you know, it's separate than the upper management, the general manager and all of those. But a lot sure. of that was the pipeline that went up to the management. 
and we traded for players that we talked about, and then we turned down players that we didn't like. And that's the way sometimes you put a team together. Well, I, I think it's a great uh, example of leadership. Of course, Sparky was uh, my favorite manager in baseball, remains my favorite manager in baseball. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I was a big red machine fan. And uh, since the time I was a little boy, uh, talk about as that team, though, was being developed. Did you know what y'all had as folks were being added on to that team? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't have to look very far. Look around you. You're a guy sitting next to you in the locker. Here's Pete Rose. Here's Tony Perez. Then we traded for yeah. Joe Morgan. And then we yeah. had Dave Concepcion fill in. And then all of a sudden, Geronimo comes over in the trade as our center fielder. If you looked at Cesar, you never thought he was much of anything. Wound up hitting 300, and nobody realized he had eight foot strides instead of most outfielders six foot strides. Then he had Ken Griffey. Ken Griffey was our ultimate second place hitter and bat and defensive. Then George Foster comes over, and he, you look around and you see all the character players and everything else. But you know, leadership is—I always like it. Well, he's great in the clubhouse. Well, I'm not sure what great in the clubhouse means. Does he play good music? Does he do stuff? Is he a raw, raw guy? A leader is somebody that's on time. A leader that mm. accepts responsibility. Right. He's reliable. He doesn't ask you any special uh, special considerations. He's on the bus on time. He's on the plane on time. He's He follows the rules. He knows the rules. He follows the rules. He has to be involved in those things and be a part of that. You know, I talk about the vowels of success, the AEIOUs of life. And A is an attitude that I have. You can develop your own A's. You can develop your own vows. A is an A, give me an answer. What are the answers? What are the what are the things I need to know? Why don't the kids in school have the answers? Why don't they find that? E is an effort for excellence. I want to be the very best. Why? Well, you know, and and you know, I is an individual. There's no I in team, it's all eyes. You've got to have the great people around you. You're putting on a podcast. Why? Because Anna's in the background doing all the work. And you've yes, got that's right. <laughs> it, it, it's just true. And and you better have it individuality, but you got to have inspiration. You got to have people that inspire you around you. And then you got always oh, an opportunity. Somebody gave you this opportunity and you took advantage of it. You is using people, using their knowledge, taking from them the power that you can give to you, what they can give to you, the serenity that you can have from them. And why sometimes is you, you are important and never underestimate mm. that. And don't hold your happiness mm. in the hands of others. You can't wait for somebody to applaud and tell you how great you are. You have to have something within yourself that says, I am good. And when mm. you do something good, then do something for yourself. I don't care if you go yeah. fishing or hit golf balls or whatever. I like to use different different vowels because then I start talking about E is an employability. If you mm. wrote out your resume, would you hire yourself? Oh, I mean, are good. people enough to do it? I mean, it's all of the things, aspire to inspire and inspire before you expire. You know, mm. it's like you do <laughs> so much inspiring and everything else. You know, the good in all of us is so important. You know, we rely on God, obviously, to do it. And that was where most of the foundation has. I was 10 years perfect attendance at the Binger Baptist Church. And we That's have great wonderful. foundation. And we go into depth. I follow the Ten Commandments. I do the right by what we're doing. I do unto others. Or... You know, love your father, you know, and love your deal, love your deal, love me, love you. But, you know, and here's yeah. one, and we'll, we'll blow up this podcast right here. Bobby Knight, <laughs> Bobby Knight <laughs> is a, keep the assholes away from you. 
<laughs> I said, now, isn't that the truth? I said, Absolutely. we don't kids hanging around bad kids. We want to know who they are, what they're doing, and everything else. Why are we? And you and I have always chosen people that are around us, that surround us, some of the yes. greatest people, some most deeply religious people, some of the people that don't normally don't have the faith in the God or whatever it is. They have to, but they are people that make decisions yes. every day. And yes. you know, I, 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 my kids go to Jupiter Christian School, and yeah. you know, well, we'll pray for you. And I said, well, we're going to open a business. Let's pray for it. No, you've got to take charge of it yourself. God will lead yeah. you. God will direct you in so many ways, but you've got to do this yourself. You mm. can't rely on just one thing. Well, prayer will solve all. I'm sorry. I, I guess I should be better at this, but it's it's a responsibility that you have. I pray that I get a hit. Well, <laughs> you better have <laughs> skills that do that. Okay. So take Practice charge helps. Of your life. Take charge of your life. Don't mm. wait around. We sit around and wait for government. We sit around and wait for somebody else to do when it all has to be within ourselves. We're the ones that have to make it happen. Well, Johnny, I can almost guarantee you that no one else will quote Bobby Knight probably on this, <laughs> the whole history of this podcast. But I will tell you, it's interesting that um, I've, I've written 18 books now. Most of them are on, on the life of Jesus. And what you do find is that Jesus followed that la what you were talking about <laughs> yeah. clearly. He, he would say to people, okay, I'm here. I can help transform your life, but you have to take responsibility for it. And he said that over and over again to people. And so I, I am a very much a believer in that. I think that's why um, I've, I can't tell you the number of times I've had doctors tell me, well, you know what, maybe you just ought to go on disability, or maybe you just ought to, you know, stop working so much, or maybe you ought to stop uh, trying to drive, be so driven. And I can't imagine a worse life for me because I get up every morning with a, you know, very thankful for my wife and my daughters and our son-in-laws. But I also know that I have something that I have been called to do and I want to take responsibility for that. At the end of the day, I was telling uh, our friend Brad Martin this the other day, at the end of the day, I don't want anyone to say he just gave up. And um, I think what you were saying is very important and a great lesson. Um, I, we don't have many minutes left. I have a couple, two more questions I want to ask. Go ahead, you. fire it, man. Uh, I've all, I've always wanted to ask these questions of you, so I'm going to go on and do it. Um, and and I'm not going to ask you the question I asked you at dinner that night because I've taken that lesson you gave me. Uh, uh, I asked you if Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame, and your answer became very important to me in a lot of ways. So I'm not going to ask you that question. What I am going to ask you though is, was there any pitcher? that you faced during your career that you felt was the most intimidating? Or were you just so gung-ho and ready to go do it that you'd face anybody? Well, no, you have to face adversity. You have to face evil. I mean, there's evil out there. There's good and evil, but you've got to know where it is. You've got to sure. identify it. And when the guy out there on the mound may kill you with the next pitch up and in and right to your head, you had to be aware of that. So you stepped lightly. Of course there were people. I mean, that's just what every day is, you know. When you're walking out there, do you see your surroundings? Are you aware of what's around you? Do you take into consideration where you are? And am, am I, I am in the wrong spot, in my wrong place? If this guy's up there and he's got a tendency to throw it up and in and he doesn't feel like he likes you or you hit a home run off of him the last time up, there's a good chance it's going to come right here at your coconut. So there are <laughs> pictures that, yes, I mean, let's be smart about all of this. I mean, that's the way you live is being sure. smart. 
and not making mistakes and being aware and being prepared. Well, is it true that um, in in his 19-year career, I know that Jim Palmer never gave up a a grand slam, but you hit one off him in uh, minor leagues. Is that true? That is true. That is true. Wow. I know it's a horrible (laughs) thought for him. (laughs) Jim is one of those guys. (laughs) <laughs> and then he said he just grooved it because he was behind 3-0, and and the manager told him he was just a young kid that couldn't do anything. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Buffalo, we know, we know. Buffalo, Buffalo, we were playing. I was playing for the Bison. We were actually in, in uh, playing in Niagara Falls because they, they had the riots that year. Wow. Well, um, final uh, question is um, uh, you, you had to leave baseball. You retired at 35. Uh, I know the last three years uh, you moved, I think, from third to, to first a lot of times. What was that transition like for you as you were coming to the end of your baseball career? What were you thinking in terms of the, the next season of your life? Well, I knew I, I knew I had things ahead of me. I wanted to be able to walk, first of all. I saw all these other old catchers that were now hobbled around with bad knees, bad backs. You were going to pay the price eventually no matter what happened. I mean, that's just our arthritis and I had the car wreck, you know, in 19, you know, mm-hmm. 70, I, 1975, I had, uh, oh, in 1967, I had the car wreck and drunk driver on the wrong side of the four lane. I mean, I'm lucky to even be alive at this point. Wow. They said, I've got five bad discs in my back. I've got two herniated discs in my neck. I've got 17 broken bones. I've had shoulder repli- shoulder surgery. I've had 78 chips taken out of my shoulder and people want to complain about, Oh, I ache a little bit. I was, well, now you're catching. Now you know what it's like, but I, <laughs> I, my elbow was so bad. My back was bad at that time again. And so I had to try to get to another position so that I could play. And then it was time when I'm, they moved me from first to third that I couldn't play third. I couldn't be Johnny bench. And I realized that. And I knew that, huh. you know, TV was out there. I was going to have TV. Uh, broadcast for the Reds. I had TV shows. I could still get up and do my motivational speaking. And I knew I wanted to walk away and I knew I hoped to play a lot more golf. And I wound up playing on the senior tour. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, at 75 years of age, I walk like a catcher, but uh, I'm still kicking and I still got it going. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're, the, you're the inspiration for so many people, you know, that want to complain. You know, I used to tell my mom, don't waste the worry. of the stuff, stuff, and and I'm sorry I didn't write the book, book Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, 80% of the stuff that we always worry about never happens, and the other 20% usually we can handle, handle. and the other is just somebody that we are better better than the situation. I had a thing called, called inner conceit, my other eye, the inner conceit, being better than the situation, feeling wow, that right. I could be better than what the pitcher was, or I could throw out any runner. And they were, they got me out, and I and they stole bases. But it was having the ability to believe in yourself so deeply that you had to continue on. And you can't rely on others. You have to do it. You know, if, if what you did yesterday is big to you now, then you haven't done much today. And there's wow. greater, lesser people than all of us. And why are we comparing ourselves to something that's not that important? When I've got things and responsibilities to do, I've got kids to raise. You know, a great phrase from uh, Ray Stevens' song. Did you see your children growing up today? And did you hear the music of their laughter as they set about to play? Did you Mm -hmm. catch the fragrance of those roses in your garden? Does the morning sunlight warm your soul and brighten up your day? 
Do you qualify to be alive or is the limit of your senses so as only to survive? He was a great one. He's a wonderful songwriter. And what a great, what a great quote and what a great way to finish. And uh, friends, uh, I tell you, this is going to probably, and I I don't want to insult any of the other guests that we'll have, but, uh, but this is my favorite (laughs) podcast. We want real people who are going through real situations to understand that they're going to face difficult people and they have to address that and uh, keep as many of those folks out of their lane as possible. Just keep Um, you as a friend. They'll be all right. All right. Well, I tell you, I, my favorite quote that Sparky Anderson ever said about you was after y'all had played the World Series and Thurman Munson was the opposing catcher, someone asked if uh, who was better, you or, uh, or Thurman Munson, and he responded that he did not want to embarrass any other catcher by comparing them to Johnny Bench. And I, I will echo that. Uh, as much as uh, these other guys are good, I, I still think you're the greatest that ever played the game at that well, You're very kind. You're very kind. It's, if what you did yesterday is big to you now, then, you know, I got, I, got a, yeah. I got two boys that are coming home from spring break. We're going to have to start all over, and we're going to have to work on school. We'll work on tennis. We'll work on soccer and have the best life we can possibly have. Well, uh, Johnny, thank you so much for thank being you. with us. Take care. All right. Thank well, you. Bye.